couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first three verses of this very important the day of the Lord. And when we looked at 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 3, uh, we looked at uh, the uh, relationship of the day of the Lord to the unbeliever. Now, I'll read those verses. Verses 1 to 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren... You have no need of anyone, of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come to you like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So in those first three verses, Paul begins dealing with another concern that the Thessalonians had expressed through Timothy as Timothy brought report back to Paul and part of the concern about eschatology. We've looked at some of that in chapter 4 already, but this concern related to the day of the Lord. A future eschatological event, a cataclysmic event of which the Old Testament speaks regularly, especially in the prophets, and Jesus himself taught on this, and the, the apostles made it a part of their doctrine as well. Eschatology. And in, in today's world, this teaching is, is so very important. And yet, when we talk with many people today, there is this idea, this, this feeling, this apprehension that many Christians have about eschatology, about discussions pertaining to things like the rapture and the day of the Lord. And why is that? Well, some responses would follow these lines. Some would say, well, the Bible's teaching on things is actually ambiguous. Quite a few people, many Christians would tend to affirm that. The Bible is unclear. It's, it's ambiguous. We don't really know for sure what, what will take place in the next stages of God's redemptive plan. Others would say that eschatology is a matter of secondary importance at best. Maybe it's even a third matter issue, third-rate issue that really isn't important for us when we consider all the first-rate doctrinal issues that we must consider today. Others will say that eschatology is divisive, and therefore it is a great distraction. While we should be devoting our energy and our attention to matters of evangelism, ministry in the church, the one another's, you have eschatology which comes around and divides people and takes away energy and creates strife. Others would say that studying the future actually does little help for Christians in the present. Those are common reactions to a study of eschatology, a study of the Bible's teaching on the last things. The list could go on, but in response to this general malaise, I think there's a few things that we should note before we get into our text this morning. First of all, the Bible is a lot clearer on matters of the future than is often claimed. If we just allow the Bible to speak according to the customary usage of language, just let it speak at face value, there is a lot more clarity and a lot more detail than is often assumed. Secondly, it is important to note that the future is just as important 
as the past when it comes to God's redemptive plan. We'll spend a lot of time studying the great works of God in ancient history, the Exodus, the uh, covenants that God made to the nation of Israel, those issues, the life of Christ. None of us lived during those times, and yet we see the inherent value to our own lives of understanding that redemptive history. But let me say this. The future is just as important to this redemptive plan as is the past. Thirdly, a proper eschatology is needed for us today to keep us from falling into a false narrative. A false narrative about what is going on in the world today and where it's all headed. And especially when we see the things taking place that we do today, there are a lot of a lot of saying out there, you know, what, what is going to happen and making all kinds of claims. And if we don't know our eschatology, we will be misled. Fourthly, understanding God's plan for the future does indeed have direct applications for us today. Understanding God's plan for the future does indeed have direct implications, a direct relationship to how we live our lives today. And the text that we will get into this morning brings that out with great clarity. Paul puts on a, a master class, really, in response to these, these, this discomfort or this apprehension to the things of the future by showing how important eschatology is to our lives today. Well, let's look at this text. It's, we, we are going to look this, this morning at chapter 5, verses 4 to 8. But let me read from 4 all the way to the end of verse 11. As Paul makes a shift between verses 3 and 4 to discuss or to instruct the Thessalonians about how the teaching of the future pertaining to the day of the Lord has implications for their lives in the present moment. Paul says this, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Now, as I said, we, we looked at verses 1 to 3 and we, we studied what Paul had to say about the day of the Lord as it related to the unbeliever. And in verse 1, we saw that Paul emphasizes that this future day of the Lord is an undeniable reality. It is clearly taught in Scripture, unequivocally, it is clear. Secondly, we it is an unpredictable advent. Part of the concern on the Thessalonians' part was 
their worry about not being able to understand or know whether the day of the Lord had come. And Paul affirms there and says, look, you can't predict when it will arrive. It could happen at any time. You can't predict. That's okay. And then thirdly, in verse 3, we saw that it has an unmistakable target. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, and it is aimed at the unbeliever, and destruction will come upon them, and Paul says unequivocally, they will not escape. But now he transitions here and speaks of the day of the Lord with respect to the believer. How then are we to understand our relationship to the day of the Lord? What impact does it have in our lives? If the target of this day is not us, then what is its relationship to us? This is what Paul wants to discuss with the Thessalonians in these verses. And as we look at these verses, verses 4 to 8, I want you to notice something very important in the structure here, and it follows how the Apostle Paul generally teaches. And if you know much about Paul's writing, you know that he typically moves from indicatives to imperatives. He moves from statements of reality, statements of fact, to the implications of those facts in terms of commands. And we see that even here in these verses that we have before us. If you look at the screen here, you'll see first of all that in verses three, or excuse me, verses four and five, as Paul transitions to talk about the day of the Lord, he begins with indicatives. He begins with statements of fact to help the Thessalonians understand their relationship to this, this imminent day of judgment. Paul wants them first to understand fact. He wants them to see the indicatives. And in particular, as we're going to see, he's going to focus on identity. He's going to explain why this day is not to the believer as it is to the unbeliever. And so he focuses in verses 4 and 5 on indicative statements of fact. And then in verses 6 to 8, he's going to move to the implications for that. He's going to move to the, to the commands, to the, the imperatives, the, the hortatory commands that Paul gives in those verses. So let's arrange our thoughts according to those two Uh, two elements within this text, the indicatives and the imperatives. And let's look first, verses 4 and 5, at the indicatives. And in particular, Paul wants the Thessalonians, as he does for us, he wants us to recognize or remember our identity. Remember your identity. As you think of God's coming judgment, this cataclysmic judgment, which will come upon this world, all the unbelievers, in a, in a catastrophic way, as Paul comforts the Thessalonians, first of all, he says, remember your identity. Remember your identity, Thessalonians, and remember your identity, beloved members of commissioned. He begins in verse 4 with these words. He says, but you, brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you. Notice the very first words of this sentence. He says, but you, and it signals this transition in in the focus of his argument. He makes this transition from verses 3 to 4, and he moves from the they and the them 
and the they, you see it several times in verse 3, speaking of unbelievers. But now in verse 4, his focus moving forward is going to be on the believer. And so he will refer to the audience now as you. And, and he'll even say in verse 5, we and us. And he'll, he'll continue that in, in verses 5 and 6 and 8. The focus here is clearly on the believer and even addresses them. He brings in for the 11th time in this letter, the most frequent, uh, uh, this, this frequent address, most frequent in the book of 1 Thessalonians. He calls them brethren. He, he gets their attention by identifying with them. They're, they are his spiritual kinsmen. And what this does is it helps us understand that when it comes to to the day of the Lord, what is very important is to recognize identity. How the day of the Lord relates to people has everything to do with their identity. And it is everything to do with whether that person is an unbeliever or a believer. This is very important because it's going to tie into how Paul motivates them. And, and this is crucial because, and some of you may have had this in your past, there are some who want to motivate Christians to, to a certain kind of living in light of impending judgment this day of the Lord by fear. By cultivating a fear that if I don't live a certain way, I'm going to end up the target of the day of the Lord. And it's very easy to do that. Fear is a huge manipulator. Just look at the last two years and what has happened to the world. We, we see it vividly how fear can be implemented to motivate people to do the strangest things that they would have never thought possible. But that is not how Paul motivates the Thessalonians with respect to the day of the Lord. He motivates them, as we will see, by virtue of their identity. And, and what he is communicating to us here very clearly in this text is that there are only two ways to relate to the day of the Lord. If you are a believer, you relate to it one way. If you are an unbeliever, you relate to it in a very different way. As the commentator Lenski said, these writers know of no twilight zone or condition. There's no middle ground here. There's no fence sitting here you are either in one category or the other now in light of that Paul makes now in verses four and five a series of assertions a series of what we say indicatives a series of statements of fact about these believers in Thessalonica and he does that so that they would understand how to relate to the day of the Lord And notice, as we go through verses 4 and 5, that he uses both negative and positive assertions. He's going to say, you are not this, but you are that. And more than that, he's going to use these powerful biblical motifs to help them understand these categorical distinctions. He's going to talk about darkness versus light and versus day. And so, as we think about the day of the Lord for our lives, we have to follow this same kind of logic. And let's begin with the the negative assertions that Paul brings up here in in this text. 
he first emphasizes to the Thessalonians and to us who we are not. And that's where we begin. Who you are not. Notice what he says in verses 4 to 5. He says, you are not in darkness. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, we are not of night nor of darkness. Now, what is Paul referring to with those analogies, light and, or excuse me, darkness and night? Well, darkness, especially in the scriptures, but not only in the scriptures, it's a very common motif outside of, of scripture, even in our day to day. Darkness in the scriptures, especially, is the sphere of spiritual deadness. Darkness is the sphere of sin. Darkness is that realm of corruption. And Paul categorically says to them, you are not in darkness. You are not of night. You are not of darkness. That is not who you are. Think of that, Thessalonians. You are concerned about this day coming upon you. You are concerned about how to prepare for it. But let me tell you how. You, you must rem remember first of all who you are not. And that will totally change your anxiety about this imminent day. Now to get an idea of how scripture this motif. There are several texts particularly in, in John. You could really trace this out in John's gospel. But this helps us understand just a few texts. Help us understand what the darkness is all about. John 3.19 This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. John 12 verse 46 Jesus says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me may not remain in Darkness. Then the Apostle Paul himself, as he, as he tells his testimony and the commission that he received on that road to Damascus in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, he, Paul records the words of the Lord that Jesus spoke to him there. And he says that his commission was as follows, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the domain of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That is faith in Christ. Spiritual darkness here. This darkness is, is that sphere in which the unbeliever lives and moves and has his being. And the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, you do not dwell in that realm. That is not who you are. Remember that. Secondly, we turn that around to see how Paul positively affirms that. Here's another indicative, and, and these are in absolute categories. He says in verse 5, you all are sons of light and sons of day. The, the word all here is important because as we've already seen, there were some in this church who, for various reasons, lacking in their faith. Some were lacking in their faith because of their, their trouble with, with temptation. We saw that in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. 
there were those who were struggling with, with sexual temptation. And, and then we saw in chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, that there were some in the church who were lacking because of their, their dependency upon others. They were lazy. They refused to work. And so they, they were a burden. They were lacking. And then we saw in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, that there were some who were deficient in their faith because they had a, a misunderstanding about death and what it means to die in Christ before Christ comes to take his church. There are weaknesses in this church. We'll read of some more of that and later in chapter 5 as well. Some other problems that these Thessalonians manifested. And yet Paul says to them all categorically, you are all sons of light and sons of day. There's no tier system here. No caste system within the church. All equally are sons of light and sons of day. If you are in Christ, if, if you have turned from idols to, to the living God, if, if the word of God has, has impacted your heart and it has come not just by word, but with power and with all conviction, you are a son of light. You are a, a son of day. And this word sons here is a, is a, is a Hebrew expression. Common in Hebrew literature, Old Testament literature, you see it even in the Gospels, that the term sons is a way of identifying someone with someone else. And often we see it in terms of lineage, human lineage, so a son of Abraham or, a son of, or the son of David. But we also see it in the Old Testament and in the Gospel writings we see that it is used to identify a person with a concept. So sons of the kingdom, for example. Or here we have sons of light and sons of day. In other words, these Thessalonians and all true Christians belong to and are defined by and they trace their lineage to the light. Well, what is that light? Well, it's the opposite of darkness. And if darkness was the sphere of sin... The sphere of wickedness, corrupt spiritual deadness, light is the exact opposite. Light is the sphere of enlightenment. It's the sphere of knowing and understanding. It's the sphere of righteousness. In John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus uses this analogy of light and, he, and we read this. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. A very important text in Second Corinthians chapters four, verse six, where the apostle Paul says this for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In Ephesians 5, verse, Paul makes a similar assertion. He says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Again, emphasizing that reality. He doesn't say you are becoming light. He doesn't say you must obey in order to be light. He just says you are light. And this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 as well. The Thessalonians are to understand their identity. They do not belong to the darkness. 
They, they belong to the light. And why does this matter? Notice what he says in verse 4. This is why it matters. That identity, that categorical identity, being in one of these two categories matters. And it matters particularly for us as believers, as children of the light. It matters. Why? Verse 4. That the day you like a thief in the night. In other words, he's saying it won't. If you go back to verse 3, Paul was very clear that this day would overtake those of darkness. While those in the darkness were so oblivious and ambivalent to their own sin and wickedness, those in the darkness are saying, peace and safety. Where is God? Where is God? He's dead. He cannot do anything about this. While they are saying peace and safety, what happens to them? Destruction will come upon them suddenly. But Paul says, because you are of the light, this day will not touch you. This day will not impact you. This day is not related to you. This is not something that you have to be concerned for you to experience. Paul pinpoints the implication of this identity. And the day he's referring to here refers back to that day of the Lord. And and when he says it will not overtake you, he says it's not going to overcome you. The thief is not going to strike at your home. It's not going to include you. And Paul is going to explain this in a little bit more detail in verse 9. We'll get to that two weeks from today. When we look at the last part of this paragraph, verses 9, 10, 11, the climax of this important teaching on eschatology. But let me explain already why the day does not overtake those who are sons of the light. This is important. Paul wants them to understand that the solution to their anxieties has to do with their identity. And their identity means that the day of the Lord is not for them. He's already mentioned this back in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Paul made this statement about the nature of true saving faith. And he, he describes back to them the, the testimony that their lives have had throughout the region of, of Macedonia and Achaia. And he says this, they report how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That is a a categorical description, an absolute description, that Jesus rescues His church, His people, from the wrath that is coming. He rescues them. And as I said in verse 9, we will read a, A similar, where Paul, in this context of the day of the Lord directly, states this. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what is so important about about understanding our identity. When we think of the impending judgment of God upon this world... It's easy to, to, to question, well, am I, have I been good enough? And, and, and have I obeyed enough? And, and what happens if in that moment I, 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 I'm, I'm caught unaware and, and so on and so forth? And undoubtedly the Thessalonians had 
those kinds of concerns as well. And Paul says, well, the answer to that is to remember who you are. And by remembering who you are, not remembering or thinking about what you're doing, but remembering who you are provides the solution to your anxiety. Light, this wrath isn't for you. Because you're a son or a daughter of the day means that you don't have to worry about this coming wrath. Let's think of some some implications here then. That the day of the Lord will not strike believers reminds you that it is not accomplishments that that will rescue you, but only a particular identity. It's not your accomplishments that will keep you safe. It's not your accomplishments that will deliver you at the moment when that day of the Lord breaks. What will deliver you will be your identity. And this reality gives you a a prime opportunity to reflect upon your relationship to that saving identity. In which category are you? What is your identity? So if someone were to ask you, how do you know that this impending judgment will not come upon you? How do you know that that you're not going to be under the cup of the wrath of the Lord as it is poured out? And if your answer to that question is, well, because I go to church, because I read my Bible every day, because I give money to charities and I'm, I'm, I'm very charitable and generous to others, and you go down the list of accomplishments, you've missed the point, and you've missed it disastrously. There's only one answer to that question. Why will this day of the Lord not come upon you? Because I'm in Christ. Because I am His. I am a son Or a daughter of the light. That's why. And that automatically. That automatically puts the saving function in the hands of Jesus. The one who really does come to rescue his people from the wrath to come. And so the question here that arises at this point is. At this most fundamental level. Who are you? Who are you? Strip away all the externals. The facade. The the masks and so on and so forth. The masks, metaphorically. <laughs> Strip that all aside. Who are you? In, the, in, in your, the, the seat of your soul, who are you? How do you answer that question? The day of the Lord is important for believers. The day of the Lord, by challenging us to always reflect upon our identity. But it helps us not just to Reflect upon our identity, it challenges us to recognize our responsibility. Paul brings implications from this text. Like I said, he moves from indicatives to imperatives. And we see that at the very beginning of verse 6. As he then launches into this section of, of the implications that then flow out of the identity that you have. The guarantee that this wrath will not come upon you. There are now implications. He says in the beginning of verse 6, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. The first words there in verse 6 are 
are, are quite a, a shift here. Paul doesn't just say, so. And he doesn't just say, then. He puts these two things together to emphasize his transition to, to this emphatic implication. Because of this reality that you are sons of light and sons of day, there are some very serious responsibilities. And notice how Paul has shifted, and, and now he's not just describing them, he's, he's moved now to include himself. In fact, he said right at the end of verse 5, he says, we are. He's transitioned now, instead of just addressing the believers as you, he then at the end of verse 5 says, we, and now for the rest of this section, as he talks about implications, he puts himself right in the middle of it. He says, this, this section, this instruction, these exhortations apply equally to you Thessalonians as they do to me and Silvanus and Timothy. We're all in this same category. And what Paul is going to do here is he's going to give three commands, three imperatives that flow out of our identity, three commands, three imperatives that flow out of the fact that we will not experience the day of the Lord. Now, it's important to note this, that sometimes because of this emphasis on identity and what God has done for us in Christ and who we are in Christ, that it leads some to say, well, then I have a license. I have a license to live as I want. I'm going to escape the day of the Lord. Christ is going to rescue the church from that impending cataclysmic judgment. So I can just live as I want in the flesh. Now, Paul allows no such thinking here. Despite the fact of their identity and the guarantee that that identity brings, Paul moves to these exhortations. Notice, first of all, he says, renounce indifference. Renounce indifference. Notice the beginning of verse 6. Let us not sleep as others do. Do not sleep as the world does. The verb here, sleep, is a different one than what was used in chapter 4. Remember when we were in chapter 4, Paul talks about those who were asleep, who had fallen asleep in Christ Jesus. And in that context, in chapter 4, verse 13, 14, and 15, the verb to sleep is a different one. And there, to sleep means to have your, your body physically dead. You, you've died. You've passed away. But here he uses a different verb, to sleep. And this verb, too, can refer to a literal sleep, to sleeping. It, it can also refer to death, but it also refers to spiritual laxity. Or indifference. And that's how Paul is using it here in this context. Do not sleep. In other words, do not be virtually lax. Do not be indifferent. Do not be indifferent. The security of your identity and the guarantee of your rescue does not provide a license to live worldly. To live as all those others do who are saying peace and safety. Nothing to fear. Paul says, don't live like that. That's not what the, the, the gospel is about. Renounce this indifference. The, the day of the Lord is serious. It is judgment. Yes, we will be rescued from it, but that does not allow you to have indifference about the present day about your life here on earth until you are taken. Renounce this indifference. Secondly, act 
vigilance. He says in verse 6, the second half, verse 6, he says, but let us be alert. In response to a, an indifference, a laxity, he says, let us be alert. The verb alert here refers to a, a constant level of readiness. It implies a, a military vigilance in response to what is known as a, a, a real threat of attack. Paul uses this same verb in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, when he says to the Corinthians, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. So in response to the temptation to laxity, Paul says, wake up. He says, be alert, be alert. He'll say the same thing or use this again in in verse 10. This, in in other texts of Scripture too, beyond Paul's use, emphasizes what is really a a, a, a key responsibility of the Christian. We are to be alert. This is our duty. This sums up the, the whole temper and the, the attitude of, of living the Christian life in this world of fallenness. There's an interesting allusion to this in, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. At one point, the uh, uh, Christian and his companion, Hopeful, uh, are on the hill called Clear, which is uh, an analogy of the church. And several shepherds, pastors, give Christian and his companion, Hopeful, some instructions. One of the shepherds gave them a note to explain the way. Another of the shepherds bid them to beware of the flatterer. A third shepherd bid them to take heed that they sleep not upon enchanted ground. And then the fourth shepherd bid them Godspeed. Well, eventually, Christian and Hopeful make it to this region called the enchanted ground. Let me just read a few words from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he, he writes this, Then I saw in my dream that they went till they came into a certain country whose air naturally tended to make one drowsy. And there, hopeful, began to be very dull and heavy of sleep. Wherefore, he said to Christian, I do now begin to grow so drowsy that I can scarcely hold up mine eyes. Let down here and take a nap. Christian says, By no means. Lest sleeping, we never awoke more. Hopeful says, why, my brother, sleep is sweet to the laboring man. We may be refreshed if we take a nap. Christian responds, do you not remember that one of the shepherds bade us to beware of the enchanted ground? He meant by that that we should be aware of sleeping. Wherefore, lest us not sleep as others do, but let us be watchful and be sober. Referring to 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Hope responds, I acknowledge myself in a fault. And had I been here alone, I had by sleeping run the danger of death. I see it is true that the wise man saith two are better than one. So Christians use the means of grace provided 
to get them through enchanted ground, not falling asleep. And, and that's a reminder to us. We are walking on enchanted ground. Ground that has a mysterious aroma to it that makes us drowsy. And the challenge that Paul gives, especially as he reflects upon the day of the Lord, the challenge Paul gives to the Thessalonians is that they must wake up. They must activate vigilance. They must be alert. Thirdly, Paul says, develop discipline. Develop discipline. He says, but let us be sober. Let us be sober. The word for sober here can refer to physical sobriety, the absence of alcohol in the bloodstream. But in the New Testament, this verb always refers to a, a clear-headed restraint. It To that, that level of self-control. You're familiar with what you see in the world and the inebriation that takes place. The mind goes and then there is no restraint. Paul says spiritually to the Thessalonians and to us, we cannot let that happen. We must develop discipline. This discipline, this sobriety describes how to live wisely and uprightly in a, in a foolish and a, a fallen world. We see it used, for example, in, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 5 as, as Paul is coming close to writing his final words before his life will come to a, an end with a, a sword coming across the back of his neck. And he writes this in all seriousness to Timothy. He says, but you be sober in all things. Be controlled, be clear-headed, exercise restraint. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, not only does he use that in verse 6, that verb, that command, but he also said, let us be sober in verse 8 as well. He repeats it once again. And he explains here how this sobriety is going to be realized. He says, you'll realize this sobriety, this control, by putting something on. And what is important to note here, it's interesting in the grammar how Paul explains this, is that even though the command to be sober is continuous nature, it's something that is to mark us at all moments, the putting on is described in such a way as that it comes prior to. In other words, you can't really be sober, you can't be level-headed and restrained and wise and circumspect in this world unless you put on two things. And what are they? those things? First of all, he says, it is, it's that piece of armor that for a Roman soldier would cover everything from the neck to the waist. And it protected the heart and the lungs, the, the very center of life, the spring of, of all vitality. The breastplate covered those things. And Paul describes this breastplate as a breastplate of faith and a breastplate of love. In other words, this breastplate is the, the protection against your soul walking in this enchanted ground. How will you stay awake? How will you be disciplined? How will you avoid the, the aroma of this, this world? He said, first of all, you do so by Putting on faith, putting on love. Faith relates to the believer's attitude toward the Lord and love to the believer's relationship to others. Put these things on. Have these things on. And secondly, he says, it is a helmet. A helmet described as the hope of salvation. Again, we're familiar with the helmet. The helmet 
protects the head in the front and in the back and on the sides. It, it protects the soldier's head and it is an analogy to the fact that this is pr- what protects our minds, spiritually speaking. And what is it? What does this helmet stand for? Paul says it is the hope of our salvation. Don that hope of our salvation. Hope here is not just optimism, wishful thinking. Hope here is a reference to a firm conviction in the promises made. And notice, Paul says it is the hope of salvation. And you might say, well, that's looking back to their past salvation, their forgiveness of sins. And actually in the verse 9, for just a moment, look there where Paul says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Christ our Lord. Put on this helmet, this thinking, this hope, this certainty that you will be delivered from the coming wrath. And by putting that on, that right kind of worldview, that right kind of mindset, you will be protected. You will be able to live a disciplined life. Now, why does this matter? It says it right in the middle of verse of these verses in verses 7 and 8, it matters because of this. Those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, why this matters? Because Paul says, listen, this matters because of your identity. This matters because of who you are. We are of the day. And since we are of the day, this is what we do. We are of the day. So we... Renounce indifference. We activate vigilance. And we put on discipline. It is not, as we come to a close, and as we follow Paul's logic here, it's important to remember that it is not thinking too much of your identity in Christ that leads to license but thinking too little. As I mentioned previously, there's sometimes that idea that if we dwell too much upon what Christ has done for us, all the promises and assurances of salvation, that His promises are irrevocable. His word is yes and amen. He is the faithful and true one, and what He said will come to pass. And if He has given us the gift of eternal life, it is ours, it is our identity, it is a license, and that is absolutely wrong according to the Apostle Paul. By focusing on our identity and who we are, it is that which gives us the motivation, that which gives us the energy, that which gives us the strength and the will to do what needs to be done as part of our responsibility as sons and daughters of the day. Like what J.I. Packer has said about this issue of identity, he said this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child And having God as his father. It is not the thought that prompts and controls. Excuse me. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life. It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Now what are some implications as we wrap up? Let me ask. Wake up. This world is not our home. We are aliens and strangers, and this world is about to experience cataclysmic judgment. Wake up. Number two, 
Are you ambivalent to the dangers of this world? Are you, are, are you living your life as a Christian with your guard down? Well, Paul says, look out. The threats are manifold. They're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And third, are you vulnerable against these temptations? Get dressed. Get dressed. Put on the armor. The breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation. Let's pray that the Lord would strengthen us to do just this. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, which is clear. And we're thankful, ultimately, that what determines our relationship to the day of the Lord isn't our accomplishments and performance. What determines our relationship to the day of the Lord is our identity. And that identity is all wrapped up in what you have done for us in Christ how you have chosen us before the foundation of the world to lavish upon us your grace. But we ask, Lord, that as we contemplate this reality of our identity and as we recognize that it's not our performance that saves us from the day of the Lord identity, that why would we ignore this rich privilege why would we live like those who are not your children? We pray this reality would continue to transform our thinking and would give us great motivation and hope and assurance as we live our lives waiting for Jesus who will come to rescue us from the wrath to come. We pray this in his name. Amen.